Happy New Year. First of all, I want to tell you, if those of you who kind of saw how many pages I had here, kind of cringed a little bit, it's big type. So, when I started thinking about what I wanted to preach about this morning, um, it was a few weeks ago, I thought, well, okay, how can I kind of fit into, you know, Ben's series here about Christmas, about preparing for the advent of our King. And my mind turned to Matthew, actually, Matthew chapter 2. And I was focusing on one part. I thought, okay, I, w- I want to tell the story of when Joseph and Mary and, and their child, Jesus, had to, to flee to Egypt. Because I thought, that's, that's a story we don't talk about a lot. But as I kept reading through this passage and reading through it, my mind kept being drawn somewhere else. So that's that's kind of where I went this morning. I, I don't know how many times in your life you've had, or have you ever heard the, it's an old joke that says, uh, how, do, how do you make God laugh? My family knows this one. How do you make God laugh? Tell him your plans. <laughs> I started out with this plan and God said, no, I, th- I think I've got something somewhere else we want to go with this this morning. So, let's start with uh, Matthew chapter 2 here, starting verse 1. We'll just read the story. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. At assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me words that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that all that region who were two years old or under, 
according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, the thing that kept jumping out at me as I read and reread this passage in the past few weeks here was was the three totally different responses that we saw from the different groups of people to the news of the Messiah's birth. First of all, you know, it's easy. We've got the wise men. That's, that's pretty obvious. The wise men came. They wanted to, they were seeking the king because they wanted to worship. Theirs was, theirs was a response of adoration. Then we have Herod who responded with antagonism. He, he, he was, well, who's this upstart king? I'm the king of the Jews here. And the third response that, that I noticed, which I think we kind of miss sometimes, is, is apathy. And, and I'll, I'll get into that in a little bit here. But I want to first talk, spend some time talking about those wise men that came seeking the king of the Jews. They wanted to pay him their respects, give him honor and adoration and bring him gifts. Now, a lot of times we think we're familiar with the, with the wise men. We sing the song of the, the three kings and, and all that all the time. But I don't care how your nativity scene is set up, you know, the, 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 the manger and all the, the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and then the three wise men. That's probably not right. Because the three wise, if you look at the way the story is told here, it's clear that this, this happened a while after the birth of Jesus. Uh, most guesses are, are in the range of about a year after Jesus was born. Because you notice, um, if we look at that passage again, the wise men came to the house where Mary and Joseph were staying. So they had moved out of the stable and got into some better accommodations there. And Matthew also talks about the child, not the baby. So there's been some time passed. And as I said, most guesses are placing this sometime about a year after the actual birth of Jesus. So not saying you have to throw the wise men away from your nativity scenes here, but just keep that in mind. The other thing that, that we, we like to say that there are three wise men, but we have no basis of knowing how many wise men there were more other than more than one, because it's plural. We... The kind of the tradition of thinking about three wise men came because of the three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Okay, well then, one brought gold, one brought frankincense, one brought myrrh, maybe. Maybe one brought gold and frankincense, and the other one brought the myrrh, or we don't know. All I'm saying is we don't know how many wise men there were. And were they kings? I don't know. They might have been. But uh, it, it, the Bible doesn't say. That it refers to them as wise men. So who were these guys, really? What do we know about them? What can we ascertain about them from this, this passage here? Well, the, the word that's used here for wise men, is, is it, it's basically calling them magi, wise men. They were scholars. They were learned men. It's a Persian word, or the word we get that from, it comes from Persian. 
And it refers to astrologers, men who studied the stars, and they were, they were men who interpreted dreams and, and looked at the signs. So, so in Hebrew culture of that time, the Jewish culture of that time, you know, that, that, that kind of thing, that was looked down upon. That was not a, a, a profession that you aspired to. And for Matthew then to call attention to these guys who came looking for the king of the Jews, that was interesting. Um, one of the things about the Gospel of Matthew, uh, is those who have really digged in, dug into the study of this have said that the, the book of Matthew was written by a Jew for Jews. And so it's kind of striking then that Matthew would be calling attention to this kind of disreputable, in the eyes of Jews, group of men, who came seeking the king of the Jews. Now, it's likely that these astrologers were from Babylon, based on you know, a lot of different clues in here. And so they were, like I said, likely from Babylon. These were astrologers and interpreters of dreams, which raises the question, what in the world were a bunch of astrologers from Babylon doing in Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews. Why would they even know anything about the prophecies about the, the, the coming Messiah? What was the link there? How did they get connected into this story? A little fact that I was not aware of until I started digging into this, thank you, Ben, for pointing me to some of those notes you gave me, or you sent me to, is that at the time of the birth of Christ, there was a sizable Jewish population still living in Babylon. Now, 600 years before this, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon defeated Israel and took a whole bunch of the Israelites captive back to Babylon. A little while after that, when uh, Cyrus and, and the, uh, <clears throat> the Persians then conquered Babylon and took over, then King Cyrus allowed the Jews to return. Not all of them went back. I wasn't aware of that. That was an interesting fact to me. So there were a bunch of Jews still living in Babylon at the time of the birth of Christ. Another thing that is interesting about this is that, okay, if these magi were from Babylon, which I'm thinking is pretty likely, think about something that happened during that Jewish exile. You remember Daniel? Anybody remember Daniel? Daniel, you know, oh no, what we're going to do? The king likes, okay, I can't be the only VeggieTales guy here. Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel. That guy. Chapter 2 of Daniel tells how Daniel interpreted a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not going to rehash the whole thing, but all of his, his astrologers and, and seers and diviners and all that, he said, tell me what this dream means. And they said, we don't know. And Daniel was able to interpret it. And so uh, Daniel ended up being put in charge, which I thought was, yeah, that's kind of cool. You know, here's this Jew in charge of, basically all of Babylon, but he was also in charge of all the wise men of Babylon. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, verses, verse 48, Then the king gave Daniel high honors 
and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So in light of all of that, I got to thinking that it makes sense then that these wise men of Babylon, these guys who, who you know, spent all their time either looking at the stars or with their noses in books studying all this stuff, would have been familiar with Daniel. And because they were familiar with Daniel, they maybe said, you know, maybe we should read some of the writings of these Hebrew people who are living among us. And so they were familiar then with the prophecies about the coming Messiah. So they would have been studied up on that would have made sense that, that they would have known that. So when this star appeared, they would have gone, ah, okay, that's it. Now, what was the star? Again, we don't know. We don't have enough information to know really what was going on with that star. Um, was it a comet? Was it a some kind of conjunction of the planets or constellations. Was it a, a supernova? I remember reading a science fiction story many years ago about, you know, that the star of Bethlehem was a supernova or something like that. You know, I mean, people are making wild speculations. Um, I tend to think that it was just, it was something supernatural. Um, that it was like the, the glory of God that, that, that went before the Israelites as, as they were traveling in the wilderness. You know, during the day it was a pillar of cloud and at night it was a pillar of fire. Now that's my personal opinion, but, you know, we don't know for sure what it was. The reason I think it was something supernatural is because after the wise men had their little interview with Herod, then on their way to Bethlehem, the star appeared and went before them and appeared over the place where the Mary and Joseph and, and Jesus were living. So I, I think it had to have been something supernatural. One man's opinion. Take it for what it's worth. But anyway, so they saw the star. They took a thousand-mile journey because it, as the crow flies, Babylon to Jerusalem is about 500 miles, but... In that country, no, the, unless you're a crow, nobody travels that direct route. It's about a five, uh, uh, add about 500 more miles on uh, traveling by a caravan to get from Babylon to Jerusalem. So they traveled all that way and then went to Bethlehem. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So there's their adoration, the worship. There's, there's the one response to the coming of the Messiah. The next response that I talked about was the antagonism, and that's pretty clear who, came, who that, that was. That's Herod the king. The, what the Herod that we're talking about here is Herod I or Herod I, also known as Herod the Great. 
He was the founder of the Herodian dynasty. He started, he, he broke the control of, there was a group of basically Jewish royalty called the Hesmonians, and he ended that reign, and he was appointed by Caesar as king of Judea. So, who was Herod? First point, he was not an Israelite. He was a Jew because he had been converted, his family had converted to Judaism and he had been raised as a Jew, but he was not of the house of Israel. He was an Edomite. Bob is going, <gasps> he was a descendant of Esau, Jacob's brother. And if you know your Bible history at all, you know that there was a great deal of antagonism and enmity between the Jews of the, the Israelites and the Edomites. They fought off and on for as long as they were two distinct peoples. He was appointed, as I said, king of the Jews by the Romans. Um, but being appointed as king of the Jews, that didn't mean that he just walked into Jerusalem and ascended to the throne. It required a military campaign for him to secure the throne, along with a couple of strategic assassinations. So this guy was, was ruthless in, in grabbing a hold, grabbing hold of the power in, in Jerusalem and in, in, in Israel. And his rule was marked by cruelty. I mean, he was, he, he was, he was known as Herod the Great for a lot of different reasons, among which were his, his building campaigns. I mean, he, he built a lot of different, uh, cities and buildings and all that. Um, Caesarea Philippi, for example, he built or ordered the building. He didn't do it himself, obviously, but he ordered the building of, of Caesarea as an example. Um, but he could have easily been called Herod the Cruel because of the way that he maintained power. Uh, for, and I talked about the assassinations that he ordered. He also <clears throat> ordered um, the imprisonment and execution of, of almost 50 of the wealthiest and most influential Jewish families of the time just to basically scare the rest of the Jews into not messing with him. His family wasn't exempt from this either. He ordered the execution of his one of his wives. He had ten over the course of his life. But he ordered the execution of one of his wives and two of his sons because he suspected them of plotting against him. So this was not a nice guy. Not a nice guy at all. So without all that background, you would kind of understand why he was troubled by the news about, you know, the birth of the, the king of the Jews. But you add in that background and, and, and understand what a, a power-hungry guy he was. It, that makes it even more clear why he was reacting the way he was. Now, um, the question that the, the Magi were asking was was interesting here, I thought. It says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They weren't asking, where is he who has been born to become the king of the Jews? Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? Think, Put yourself in Herod's place for a moment when you think about 
How did he become king of the Jews? He was appointed by the Romans. It was nothing of his lineage. He was not of the house of David. He was not even of the house of Israel. So for him, you know, whereas he has been born king of the Jews. Well, wait, stop. What are you talking about here? So the first thing he did was think about, okay, what, what are they talking about here? Having been raised as a Jew, he would have understood that, that these magi were talking about the Messiah. Now, the Jews of the day were expecting the Messiah, that, that the, the thought about the Messiah was that he was going to bring political liberation, which meant political liberation from who? Rome. Well, who put Herod in the place he was? Rome. So this was very bad news for him. So that makes sense to understand why Herod was troubled. But you notice the, the way the verse said is that not only was Herod troubled, but all of, uh, all of Jerusalem with him was troubled. Well, why was the rest of Jerusalem troubled by that? Well, given Herod's track record, you know, he, he had a very rotten reputation, you know, with the, with the Jews, and they thought, okay, Herod gets wind of this, he's gonna crack down even worse on us than he already has. So I, I, you know, the speculation goes that the reason all of Jerusalem was troubled by this is because they didn't want Herod getting all riled up and making life worse for them than it already was. So that, that's kind of where that came from. So, He summons the chief priests and the scribes to kind of get more information on this. Where is the Christ to be born? Now, I want to take a little sidetrack here and talk about that word Christ. The word Christ is from the Greek word for Christos, or which means anointed. And the Hebrew word that we get Messiah from means the same thing. It means anointed. And the act of anointing was literally to pour oil, sacred oil, on the head of the person being anointed, which was a sign that this person was set apart by God for some special purpose. So priests were anointed. Again, going back in the, you know, one of the first things that, that Moses did after he got the law from God, the God commanded to him to anoint his brother to be the chief, the first priest of the Israelites. So Aaron was anointed by having oil poured on his head. So priests were anointed, but significantly for this context here, kings were also anointed. Saul, the first king of Israel, had been anointed as king. And then David, who succeeded him as king, was also anointed. So the kings were anointed, meaning they were selected by God for this special purpose. So the word, the Messiah, refers to the anointed one. The one marked by God, set apart, special for this purpose. So, so Herod learns from these, uh, the chief priests and the scribes, that the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem. 
And there are two different Old Testament passages that they kind of mashed, or Matthew mashed together on this here. First one is in Micah 5.2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, one of the things about this Micah passage is it really sets this king apart from other kings because of the little thing there at the end that says, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You know, how can a newborn king be from ancient days? Just just think about that for a little while. Think about the context of, okay, this, this king is different because he's not just merely a, a human baby born king of Israel. That's not somebody who comes from ancient days or the ancient of, you know, the, the, the one of the titles we have for God is he is the ancient of days. You know, he's from before time. So I, I just found that significant. I, I don't have anything deeper than that to say about that, but that's pretty deep in and of itself. The last line that they quoted there in that, in our passage actually comes from Samuel, uh, second Samuel, uh, chapter 5, verse 2. And in that original context, he was talking about King David. But what's significant about that is the last part of that verse where it says, And the Lord said to you, You shall be the shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So we've got actually in that quotation in Matthew two different Old Testament verses cited there. So given that that information, Herod summons the, the wise men to him. Notice that he did that secretly. He didn't want to be stirring up uh, the rumor mills here by having a big public meeting with these these wise men from, from the East for some reason. He wanted to keep it quiet. And he tells them to go to Bethlehem, find the child, and then come back and let him know so he can worship. Yeah. If you believe that. <laughs> Unfortunately, the wise men did not apparently know much about Herod's reputation. They hadn't been there long enough to get a good feeling for what this guy was really like because apparently they took him at his word. So they went off to Egypt. We know the rest of the story. God kind of put a wrench into Herod's plans and he, after the, the wise men met with Mary and Joseph and, and presented their gifts to the baby, God warned them in a dream. Here again, we come back to the dreams. Ben was talking about how God was talking to Joseph via dream. Well, he talked to these wise men via dream and warned them, do not return to Jerusalem, to Herod, go home by another way. So that's what they did. Herod, obviously, after a while, figures out, hey, these guys are not coming back, blows a gasket and orders the murder of every child, male child, to and under in Bethlehem and in the surrounding region. Wow. I, he's already demonstrated what he's capable of, so this shouldn't surprise us, knowing now what we know about this man. But still, it's just, it's, it's shocking to me. 
So on the surface, I, what I saw of Herod's response was, was that antagonism. But if you fe peel back the surface there and look at that, you'll find what's actually underlying all that is fear. He's afraid of losing everything. He's afraid of losing his dominion, his power, his kingdom. So there we have the second response. The third response that I mentioned was that of apathy. And that is what we saw in the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes. Now, they had to have known about the Magi showing up because as, as the passage says, you know, Herod was troubled by this, you know, these, these wise men asking about the coming of the, this king born to be king of the Jews. So everybody and all of Jerusalem was troubled. So these, they had to know about this. And then if that wasn't enough, then Herod calls him and says, uh, say, where's, where's the Messiah supposed to be born again? So they, they had to know what was going on here. Something's happening, you know, or, or at least there's a rumor of something happening. But what did they do? Yeah, exactly right. Nothing. I mean, couldn't one of them said, hey, you know, what's, what's going on here? We used to think something's maybe going on in Bethlehem. I think maybe you and me should, you know, just do a little road trip here and see if we can figure out what's going on. Nope. Nothing. So we've got those three responses. We have the wise men who made a long, difficult journey when they saw the sign, some kind of star, some kind of light in the sky that's, that, that led them to believe, hey, these prophecies of the Messiah, they are coming true now. It's happening. We have to get there and find out what's going on. This was not an easy trip for them to make. But this was important enough for them that they made the trip and they bowed down at the feet of this year-old child, honoring him as the king. And we've got Herod's response, who he responded in fear and antagonism because he was afraid of losing his power, which actually he lost about a year after this when he died, a just absolutely wretchedly awful death. Um, if you really want to lose your appetite, I would recommend you look up Josephus's, uh, the, the, the historian Josephus describes in some detail Herod's condition when he died, and I am not kidding. Worms are involved and it is not pretty. You'd, but only if you want to lose your appetite. Seriously, it's bad. So he lost everything anyway, but he was still scrambling to, to, to maintain his power, to maintain his control, willing to, to order the killing of a bunch of kids. And then we have those religious leaders, then their response seems to be, have been a collective whatever. Now, I can understand the response of the wise men. In fact, I want to put myself in their place and think, yeah, yeah, I would be them. I would do that. Especially knowing what I know 
you know, I've, I've got not only the prophecies of the Old Testament, but I've got the fulfillment of them described in the New Testament, and I've got the testimony of, you know, 2,000 years of Christianity after that that leads me to believe with my heart of hearts that not only was this, this child born as the king of the Jews, but he's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of all creation. So naturally, I want to see myself in that place, kneeling at his throne. But at the same time, when I think about Herod, I mean, yeah, part of me goes, oh, man, no, how can you go that far? But wanting to maintain kingship, yeah, I don't have a big kingdom, but, you know, this is my kingdom. I want to keep my kingdom. This is my stuff. God, don't mess with my stuff. I can understand that because so many times in my life I've done that. Where I've tried to grasp on to what I have or what I think I have. So, yeah, I can understand Herod. I can even kind of empathize with him, even though I find his, his actual actions to be absolutely morally abhorrent. But, you know, th think of it. He was, he was the 1% of the 1%. He was at the absolute pinnacle of his society. And, and his reaction to this was thinking about, I, I'm going to lose everything I have. He lost everything he had anyway. And then there's, the apathy of the religious leaders, the kind of the, the non-response. Part of me is, is really puzzled by this. I mean, after all, these are the religious leaders. These are the chief priests and the scribes. These are the ones who are supposed to know the most about the promises of the coming Messiah. How is it that they could... Okay, here's these wise men, and, and did they, you know, didn't they see this star? Didn't they notice this thing in the new thing in the sky? Didn't did Herod asking them, okay, where's this Messiah supposed to be born? Didn't that it nothing? So part of me is puzzled by that. Part of me, I, I, again, I have to say, yeah, I I can understand that. Apathy and cynicism can just settle into your soul when you've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for something to happen that just doesn't seem to be happening. Think about the context that they were in at that time. Remember when, when we started the, the, the Advent series and, and that the video event, we were talking about this 400 years of silence. You know, just remember what that meant. That was from the time of the last prophet, Malachi, up until that time. It had been 400 years. They, they had the, the last message they had was, and this is Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet <clears throat> before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. I mean, that's, that's a, <clears throat> excuse me. A 
That's a tremendous message. That's an amazing promise. I'm going to send you Elijah. He's going to turn the hearts. And it's like, you know, you, you got to think that, the, that it's it's almost, it's a picture that the whole nation of Israel is just kind of collectively holding their breaths, waiting for this to happen. And it keeps on not happening. 400 years of silence. And I think that, again, I'm just speculating here, but I think that's why maybe the reaction of the chief priests and the scribes was just a collective, yeah, okay, whatever. Sometimes we get tired of hoping. Maybe you're sending out job application after job application after job application and nothing happens. Or there's a medical diagnosis that gives you that clench of fear in the pit of your stomach and you just keep trying treatment after treatment after treatment and nothing changes for the good. Or you're in a relationship that's being torn to shreds and you keep asking God, please intervene. Bring restoration, bring healing, bring some hope. And day after day after day after day, there's no change. Or maybe you're locked in a depression that's more than just feeling sad about something's happened, but it's this gray blanket of fog that just settles down over everything and, and blocks down, locks down every bit of energy, every bit of emotion, every bit of desire or motivation that you've got. I'm here to say that I understand that feeling. I haven't had all of those things happen to me, but I've had enough of those things happen to me that I know what it's like to feel like giving up hope. I'm also here to say that I know that what the wise men discovered, what they found, it's the real thing. That child born, the King of the Jews, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior is real. And just the way they fell down and worshipped, we can too, because he came to restore hope. He came as the fulfillment of hope the hope of generation after generation after generation before him and generation after generation after generation since. The hope that this relationship with God that was broken in the garden, the sin, the weight of sin that's dropped on us, that can be all made right through his life, his death, his resurrection. 
God promised time and time again that he would send a savior, and he kept that promise. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Calvary, I just want to say, never, never, never give up hoping in that promise. Let's pray. Gracious God, we're in the midst of what's the the darkest part of the year in many ways. The days are so short, the nights are so long. And some of us are in the midst of dark times in our lives, and I just want to ask that you keep fanning that flame of hope. The hope that was manifested as a reality in the birth of your son through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. Keep that hope alive in us, Lord, because it is that is all we have. You are all we have. Let us cling to that with all we have. And Lord, I God, I thank and praise you for being the fulfillment of every promise. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.